You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handled them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Pushkin. Uh-oh. I usually bring the dog in so that I can control his barking. That guy is so unprofessional. My best friends are dogs. Yeah. That's why he's not making it to season three, Khalil. You know? Uh, ben might need a co-host. All right. I'm back. Ben. Oh, man. Floor is yours. This is also my audition. <laughs> I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We're two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are. Some of my best friends are, hey. On this show, we <laughs> wrestle with the challenges. And the absurdities. Of a deeply divided and unequal country. Yeah, man. Talk about deeply divided. I mean, today we're talking to Clint Smith, a poet and a writer. He is helping us unpack some of the most divisive, nasty stuff in our collective memory, going to historical sites. He's using poetry to really unpack the, the meaning and emotion behind how we talk about the past. Yeah, yeah. So Clint Smith, he has a new collection of poetry out, Above Ground. It's out in March. He's also a staff writer for The Atlantic. And he also wrote this book of nonfiction called How the Word is Past. And you talked about him sort of, you know, grappling with the most divisive stuff, but he's such a beautiful writer. Like mm. when you read his writing, it feels moving and, and even uplifting. Like it's, it's, it's enjoyable to engage with all of his writing. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk to Clint. This is going to be great. I was just thinking about uh, the first time I met Khalil. It was on the train from the airport. That's right. And I, I remember because you were very serious, you know, like, <laughs> like. Well, I was, you know, I was like, oh, snap, that's Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I was like, you know, I gotta, I don't have my book on me to get signed. And so I was like, I had to, I tried to, I was trying to be too cool for school. So, so you, today we're talking to Clint Smith who has a new book out, Above Ground. It's a book of poetry, a wonderful book of poetry that in so many ways continues your meditation on how to reconcile sort of the, the realities of a, of a world that doesn't guarantee a whole lot. And what that means to think about the stories we pass on, which of course, to me, the continuity between your, your, your first 
book of nonfiction, not your first book of poetry, but your first book of nonfiction, which precedes Above Ground, which comes out this month, is How the Word is Passed. And uh, and I'm just so so excited, you know, that you're yeah. doing this work. I remember talking to you about your dissertation and thinking about the many choices and paths you could travel down. Yeah, and maybe, Clint, I'll just add to that. I mean, I, I think of the three of us being writers, all of us writing and kind of grappling with this country and invariably grappling with race in this country and and doing it in different ways and with different kinds of writing. And I, just to throw it on you, like, to let's talk about poetry. Like, like Khalil and I write nonfiction also. Um, we don't write poetry. You know, why do you turn to poetry? You know, how is that part of your writing, your writing self? For me, poetry is the act of paying attention. Mm. It forces me to pay attention to a moment, an idea, a feeling, a sentiment, a period of time mm. in ways that I might not otherwise do. Uh, it, it is both the creation of art, but it is also the mechanism through which I do my best thinking. It's the sort of excavation of, again, a moment uh, in time and, and allows me to sort of create a time capsule of of how who I was and how I was thinking about um, these ideas, these moments, and it's almost the same way that like a photographer, you know, might take a photo of a tree, right? It mm. can be a mm -hmm. tree that you walk by every single day of your life, but if you stop and you take a photograph of the tree, or you zoom in on a specific leaf on that tree, you'll see that it's actually you know several different shades of green. You'll see mm. the the hole that a caterpillar bit through. Damn. You'll see the spring <laughs> edges. You know that the uh, as as like you know uh, summer turns to fall. It it just allows you to to pay attention to that which you otherwise might encounter every day, but with a different level yeah. of uh, intentionality. Bring it, Clint. Bring it. We love Man, this. Man, that is some <laughs> impressive wordsmithing. But really, I mean, all jokes aside, what you're saying is poetry is your first draft of expressing what you're living. That's mm. exactly right, Khalil. I mean, uh, in your new collection, Above Ground, so much of that, what you just said, that careful observation, the, the commemorating of a moment is about your children. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and many of the poems are written in second person to a you who are, are your two children. And, and Khalil and I are both parents, we're both fathers. Our kids are older than yours now. Um, and yeah, and like, you know, why do that? I mean, you know, what does it mean that you're doing that as a parent and sort of, you know, taking care? It's not a leaf. It's your child and, and how you read to them at mm -hmm. night or how you how you see them uh, process a certain moment. Mm -hmm. uh, these these fleeting aspects of parenthood. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think coming out of my last book, um, How the Word is Passed, which is thinking about how different historical sites across the country reckon with or fail to reckon with their relationship to the history of slavery. Um, you know, I I, I spent several years thinking about and researching and traveling to uh, sites of, of enslavement. You know, it was sites of uh, torture, sites of uh, trauma, sites of, of uh, a sort of inexplicable human suffering. And what happened is that as I was researching how the word is passed mm -hmm. and, and traveling all these different places, my wife and I were starting our family. So now my son is uh, five going on six, my daughter's three going on four. And when I was in these places, it, inevitably, and people who've read how the word is passed will know, inevitably so much of how I was processing these spaces was tied to and animated by being a father mm -hmm. and being like, and, and having that become a new part of my identity. So when I'm standing, you know, in a cabin at Whitney plantation in Louisiana, yes. And I'm thinking about what it means to stand in the, and, and have my feet on the same wooden planks within the same structure that generations of enslaved people slept in themselves. It, you know, I'm thinking now of, of, you know, the, the sort of torture of, Slavery, not only through the prism of the the spectacle of physical brutality, but also family separation, right? And I remember specifically standing in that place and thinking about what would it be like if I put my kids to sleep 
Mm. And I woke up the next day and my children were gone. Mm. And I had no idea what had happened to them. I had no idea where they went. I had no idea if I would ever see them again. Mm. And it's a sort of unfathomable sort of uh, cruelty, a sort of unfathomable sort of emotional terrain to even have to imagine. And I had those sorts of moments at all these different types of places all across the country. Um, And part of what shaped the desire to write above ground is that I was thinking so much about the experience of parenting in the context of enslavement Mm. that I wanted to, and, and in the context of what it means to be part of a lineage of enslaved people um, and the descendants of enslaved people and how to, what it means that my children are the descendants of these people who are in these cabins, who are on this land. But I think all the time about how the black experience in this country, as much as it is fundamentally important, as you all know, and think about all the time, it is fundamentally important to take seriously and engage with and, and struggle with the, the history of violence and oppression that's been enacted on black people. Right. And the experience of being a black person in this country is not singularly defined by that trauma, by that violence, by that oppression. It's far more expansive than that. It's far more diverse than that. It's far more, it stretches into, into joy That's and right. stretches into wonder. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I was writing poems that reflected the totality yeah. of my own thinking. Yeah. Right. So I, I do take seriously and think about this history all the time. And like, I love, watching my kids watch a ladybug take flight for the first time. Mm. Like I love (laughs) having a dance party with my kids in the middle of the kitchen. Like I love, you know, all of these different parts of, of who I am and how I make sense of my own experience in the world. And so this was a, an attempt to think about how we hold both the, uh, social tumult and historical suffering alongside uh, a sense of wonder, a sense of awe, a sense of joy, um, and what it means to watch mm. your kids, you know, these tiny little humans sure. sort of discover the world for the first time. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's very powerful and evocative. So could you share, um, uh, could you could you read one of the poems uh, from, from Above Ground for us? I'd be happy to. Given that I was um, talking about the sort of writing into a space of joy. Um, let me just do this, this other one. Go uh, for it. That's all right. Yep. Dance party. <laughs> Sometimes in the evening after dinner, after the spaghetti has been slurped and I have bribed the broccoli into their bellies, I give both of my children the look. When my eyes meet theirs, they know what time it is. They push in their chairs. They stretch their legs, and we move the table to the far end of the dining room to clear space for what we all know is coming. Alexa, play the post-dinner dance party playlist. And within seconds, Martha Wash's booming voice rolls like thunder over our bodies. Everybody dance now. Mm -hmm. The electronic keyboard and the drums meet in the Mm -hmm. middle of the room like two dinosaurs ready to claim this kitchen as their own. (laughs) Immediately, the jumping begins, and my daughter is flinging her limbs like an offbeat octopus, hands slapping the air behind her as if she is trying to smack anyone who enters her sacred space. I turn around, and my son is doing the robot, or is being eaten by a robot, or is trapped in a universe where robots take over the bodies of little boys in peanut butter pajamas nonetheless, There was a robot somewhere, and my children, bless them, have not yet learned how to clap on the two and four, so I laugh, but also cringe, as their small bodies make a mockery of the melody around them. Now, halfway through the song, everyone is jumping, and I, caught up in the ecstasy of this moment, fall to the ground and convince this no longer young body that it is a good idea to start doing the worm. And when my children see me, their eyes become pools of possibilities, and it is clear that they see this as a clarion call to climb onto my back. And now, here we are, this strange trifecta, this unlikely trio, a robot and an octopus riding the back of a worm who will certainly need some Tylenol before bed. (laughs) And it is in this moment that their mother comes home. And when she opens the door, everyone is screaming, the speakers are blasting, and the percussion is shaking every wall around us. We look up at her. And she looks down at us, and we have no explanation for this strange scene, <laughs> only an invitation for her to join. That's right. Oh, to go, man. man. Thank snap, you. Thank snap. you. That's, that's Thank so you. lovely. 
But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Clint Smith in a minute. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. All right, we are back on some of my best friends are... Clint, that that poem is is all the things you said about sort of being immersed in your in the life of your family and to find the the beauty and joy in these details and and how they're I don't know they they're expanded. Um, it makes me think too of a recent essay you wrote for the Atlantic, where you wrote about Tyree Nichols, who was recently murdered. Yeah, you know, so this this essay you're talking about is about um, for those who might not be familiar, it's it's thinking about Tyree Nichols um, and his love of sunsets, you know, and he and his life are a reminder of the plurality and the heterogeneity of the black experience in this country, right? I think it will be so easy for somebody maybe to hear his name and to make a set of assumptions about who he is, where he comes from, what his interests are, what he was into. Um, and, and that, largely for him is 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 not the case and and I think you know one of the things that I was most struck by um in the sort of aftermath of his death and and the subsequent video was this quote from his mother where she talked about how much he loved going to the skate park in the evening mm. at dusk mm. and watching the sunset um and there was this photo uh that his brother had started sharing of Tyree taking a getting out of his car um, as the sun was setting just beyond the horizon and sort of taking a selfie with this sunset in the background. And I, you know, as I talk about in the essay, it made me think about this painting by Van Gogh that I had seen. And and Van Gogh similarly had this love of sunsets and tried to capture them in all sorts of ways. And and I there was a moment where I, um, I had stumbled on it, not because I'm, you know, a a well-learned art historian or anything is mm -hmm. because I was Googling sunsets um, mm -hmm. to draw with my, with my kids. And, and there was, you know, his Van Gogh wrote this um, letter to his brother where he talked about attempting to capture the beauty of, of the sun setting before it crossed over the horizon before, you know, this fleeting thing that is both so quotidian and yet so miraculous mm -hmm. um, wanting to like capture that through his work. And I saw the same, 
thing in Tyree mm. Um, mm. and heard the same thing and saw it in his photo and heard it in his mother's voice when she talked about um, his his love of going to the skate park to watch the sunset every evening. And so I think in in these moments, I try to I try my best to say something that is less centered on those who murdered this person mm-hmm. and more on uh, an attempt to remember the person as a person, mm-hmm. um, remember the person as a human. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that, Clint. That essay, it is extremely powerful. Um, I actually want to shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about another work of yours, the book you released in 2021, a work of nonfiction, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. You know, it's this series of essays, like like these trips you go on. You go to these sites of memory, these sites of memorializing. And for me, you know, as somebody who writes long-form features, magazine features, reading this book, it felt a lot like, like eight reporting trips, you know, mm-hmm. for a magazine. And where you're there as the, the, the seeing eye of the reporter that we can do in those kind of pieces. And so the experiences could be kind of, you could, you're both bringing back the information of a place, but also this kind of seeing eye of taking everything and it's mediated through your own experiences. I wondered how you conceived of the book in that sense. Did you, did you think of it, you know, related to your magazine work? Did you think of it related to, um, you know, how your role would be in sort of using yourself in this sense, like, like even in a kind of move, a narrative, a a storytelling move? Yeah, no, I really appreciate that question. And it's interesting because, so the book came out in June, 2021. And it was fascinating when, uh, when all the reviews started coming out, there was this, everybody started saying like, poet and journalist, Clint Smith goes to these different historical sites. And I was like, "Who's a journalist? Like, uh-huh. Who are they talking about? <laughs> like what? Like it? I was like, like a magazine writer. I was like, what? Like it? It's so interesting because like I, I only started working at the Atlantic in 2020, uh, September 2020, and this was after I turned in the book, and I had never, I hadn't worked in media before. Like I, I was a graduate student, uh, getting my PhD at, at Harvard. Yeah. Um, so what? So what were your models like? What then? What were you? What were you thinking about as models for this trip? Yeah, for these I, eight trips, I should say. I think that writing this book taught me how to be uh, a journalist. It taught me how to be a writer of narrative nonfiction. It taught me, and I think what I what I tried to do was just I kind of just looked up like what are the best examples of narrative nonfiction. Um, that have been published. And so spent a lot of time, you know, reading the work of, uh, folks like, uh, obviously the warmth of other sons as well. Wilkerson sort of stands on its own at the, at the Zenith of, of the genre. Um, and, and I kind of was learning as I go and, and because originally it wasn't imagined as, a a narrative nonfiction book. Um, I thought that it was going to be my second collection of poetry. Mm. Um, the first being counting descent, right? The first being Counting Descent, mm-hmm. and I thought that this one would be uh, my next collection because the origin story of the book is that in 2017, I watched several Confederate statues come down in my hometown in New Orleans, mm-hmm. statues of P.G.T. Beauregard, Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee. And as I was watching these statues come down, I was thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a majority black city in which there were more homages to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And thinking about, well, what are the implications of that? What does it mean that to get to school, I had to go down Robert E. Lee Boulevard? Mm -hmm. To get to the grocery store, I had to go down Jefferson Davis Parkway. That my middle school was named after a leader of the Confederacy. That my parents still live on a street today named after someone who owned over 150 enslaved people. Because the thing is, we know that symbols and names and iconography aren't just symbols. They're reflective of the stories that people tell. That's right. And those stories shape the narratives that communities carry. And those narratives shape public policy. And public policy is what shapes the material conditions of people's lives. So it's, you know, and that's not to say that you just take down a statue of Robert E. Lee and suddenly suddenly you'll erase the racial wealth gap. But I do think it helps us recognize the sort of ecosystem of ideas and narratives that help ground our understanding of American history and help us understand the way certain communities have been disproportionately intentionally harmed throughout American That's history. Right. And, and, so, and, and a simple point, I just want to echo this here because you said it, yeah. I just want to say it, say it slightly differently. These symbols matter, which is why they went up in the first place. 
Exactly. <laughs> so, yes. Right. Okay, go ahead. And if you engage, yeah, and as and as you and so many others have written about, like, if you think about the context in which they were erected. Correct. It is real to be very clear yep. what the intention behind them were. That's right. Um, and so I think watching the monuments come down for me was a catalyst to a, a sort of personal reckoning, right? And me being like, man, like I grew up in this city. I'm the descendant of enslaved people, right? Like my grandfather's grandfather mm-hmm. was enslaved. Mm-hmm. And yet my own understanding of the history of slavery in New Orleans, in Louisiana, and really across this country is not actually commensurate with the impact and residue that it has had on this country today. Mm. And so at first I was like, okay, well, this book, I'm going to write a book of poetry that's about all of these different statues in New Orleans. And so I started with poems and then it was like, okay, well, you know, I think I need more space. And so then I started writing these sort of extended lyrical sort of meditative essays. And then I was like, I think I need additional voice. Like if I'm trying to think about how different parts of this country think about this history, then I need more voices beyond my own. So then I started incorporating other people. And then I was like, well, I have to bring in the sort of uh, historiography that shapes, you know, the, the, the things that I'm um, wrestling with. And so then you bring in the, the archive, then you bring in all of these scholars. And so, you know, what's true, and I tell this to young writers all the time, like what you, the fully formed book that you see, like I spent probably like a year and a half writing over and over again, what I thought would be the first chapter of that book. Yeah, right. Um, and I probably wrote like four versions of it. Yo, yeah, man, the, know, the beginnings, like, the beginnings of those kinds of books are always the hardest. Cause you're like trying to figure out the mode of storytelling. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. My last book, yeah, same thing. Uh, six months just on that first chapter and, and many, yeah. many efforts that are failed. Um, yeah. Complete wrong approach. And the thing that I, and the thing that I always try to tell people is that like the way I think about it is it's like, you can think of it as failure in some way or like a sort of necessary failure yeah, process. I, I think about it. Yeah. It's, and, and that's not to say that's how you were saying, but like, I think of it as practice. Right. Like, cause I, I, I played sports my whole life. You know, I played soccer, you all played tennis. Um, I, and you know, you know that you don't just show up to the game That's right. and like, and play and like are good, right. You have to put in hours and hours and years of work that people never see so that when you show up to the court or the field, people are seeing the manifestation mm. of the work that you put in previously. And I think of writing the same way. Yep. It's like, you know, I spent a year writing, you know, 50,000 words that will never leave my, uh, my yeah. computer. That's right. So Clint, let's talk, let's yeah. talk a little bit more about w- what's in the book. Um, because Ben and I, uh, are both fascinated by some of the places you visited for personal reasons. And, and, and I'll start, uh, obviously your reporting on the Whitney plantation, which is an extension of your hometown. Mm. It is today the only um, museum dedicated to the history of enslaved people at a plantation, in this case, a plantation about sugar. Uh, It's surrounded by plantations that are often sites of museums and tours. So so in the country, Khalil, there's no other museum dedicated to the history of slavery or enslaved people in the country? Of sugar slavery, for sure. Of sugar, okay. And there are other sites that tell the history of slavery and even have artifacts. Uh, But as a plantation, uh, best I know, this is the only one that is centering the experience of the enslaved. And And, so- And you you wrote about this for 1619. Yeah, yeah, I wrote about it for 1619. In any case, um, I was fascinated to read your own experience on it. I really appreciated the more expansive treatment uh, that you gave it. And I just wanted to hear you talk, you know, at, at least a little bit about something that you took away from the surprise. I guess the question, you know, for me to you is, you know, what surprised you about the Whitney Plantation um, as opposed to what you expected? Yeah. You know, I, I had previous to that, I went to the Whitney in the first time I went would have been late 2018. Um, and I had never been to a plantation, um, that centered, as you kind of, as you mentioned, that centered the lives and experiences of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to this place, uh, I had heard a lot about it, obviously given, um, some of the fanfare that it opened to given its unique 
role in the sort of landscape of American museums. I What I will say is that part of the issue I recognized later was that the only first person accounts that I had encountered of enslaved people were like Frederick Douglass mm. and, and, you know, sort of secondhand versions of like Harriet Tubman, you know, the sort of, uh, this kind of superstars of, of slavery, you know, and the way that we, we think about them and talk about them. And what happened at the Whitney is that I, it gave me insight into a set of experiences and voices, um, from ordinary mm. enslaved people, mm. you know, enslaved people who did not escape enslaved people who did not teach themselves how to read or write, enslaved people who did not rescue, you know, dozens and dozens of people coming back and forth. And 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 I understand why the stories of Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman are told, because they are remarkable. I mean, like they are not just remarkable enslaved right. people. The the universe doesn't make many people like a Frederick Douglass, like a Harriet Tubman. I mean, these are remarkable people in human history. And what the Whitney House makes clear is that the experiences of folks like that are not reflective of the experiences of the vast majority of enslaved people, uh, many of whom were simply trying to make, create a meaningful life amid the unfathomable conditions that they lived in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and, can I, can I interrupt you on that point? Cause I think that's, yeah, I mean, I, that's such a powerful connection to your choices as a writer and what I know we've been talking a lot about is like, how do we choose to explain things and the enormity of the crimes against humanity? And what I'm hearing you say is that part of the inspiration and the surprise of being at Whitney is that people who lived through this had the first words themselves. Mm. And, and that's such a powerful reminder for, you know, for writers in general is that we often discount that, that the people we're writing about do have a voice and can speak and do speak for mm. themselves um, and even sometimes get it wrong, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, it, in interesting, Absolutely. unexpected ways, which you, you know, you also uh, write about in this book, particularly in, in, yeah, in your trip yeah. to Gori Island. Yeah, I actually wanted to, I wanted to talk about that for a minute, Khalil, because I, I also took that trip. The last chapter of Clint of your book, you go to Gori Island off the coast of Senegal. And I took a trip there as well. And actually, my father is an African historian. He's now emeritus. Mm. Um, and I had tagged along as a young adult with a group of African historians and Africanists. There was like a conference in the Gambia, and I was like, this seems like a really interesting way to explore the world. I remember that it was 1998, because the Bulls just won their second three-peat, and we watched it in a bar <laughs> in the Gambia. There you go. Um, I love that. <laughs> oh, man, never forget it. It was like one of the greatest nights of my life, of my dad and I in this bar watching it, and then swimming at, at night in the Atlantic Ocean together. It was beautiful. Oh, my God. Oh, I've um, never heard that story. It's, hmm. I, if, I was, if I was Clint, I would turn it into a poem, because it was really, it was like that. <laughs> um, but then, so then you know, you, we, we traveled to Senegal, to Dakar, and we get on this boat just like you did, and you go to this island. And we went to uh, the, the the Maison des Esclaves, the House of Slaves, this this memorial mm. to the slave trade. And there, you know, there's the 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 it's called the Door of No Return. Is that right? Mm. And a little door, and you look out into the Atlantic Ocean, and this place tells this story of you know that millions of enslaved people of Africans were taken here from from the continent and taken to the United States and taken to the Americas. And as you write in the book, you know, I'm there with all these historians who were like, you know, listening and also assessing. And my dad, I remember saying to me, he was like, there's nowhere to dock a ship out this window. Mm -hmm. It was like, there, there was, you know, this wasn't a spot where, 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 where human beings were like thousands and thousands, if not millions of human beings were taken out this door. Um, and, like, you know, it, he write, was like, it's physically impossible. It was, it was like, physically impossible. There was just nowhere, to, there was nowhere to like dock a ship. And like, you're still looking out at the ocean and you're thinking about this. And as you write, like, you know, some of that memorial sites, facts were inaccurate. You know, maybe there were tens of thousands of people taken from Gore Island. They were sort of stored there before being, being on this journey. Um, and, and I got to say that neither from my dad nor the other historians there, they weren't dismissive. This was still loaded with meaning, but right. but they also were pointing out the inaccuracies, the actual like the impossibility of this actual site being this this major transportation hub, because that's also what they do. Mm -hmm. They're like telling history, 
And and in your book, I mean, it's so striking to talk about these memorials and what what memory is and what what symbolism is too. Because you know, you're deep inside of that at the end of this book. Like, what do we really want? What do we even need from our our these memorial sites? I think um, I'm so glad. I thank you for sharing that story. Um, it sounds like a really um, special and, and formative experience. Um, Amazing, yeah, it truly was. You know, I think about what I thought about with Gore um, and the Maison des Esclaves. Uh, I kind of put it in conversation with the chapter that starts the book, right. uh, Monticello, because part of what Monticello reveals to me is that these sites of history and of memory are not static. Um, and the way they tell the story, the way they once told the story is not how they necessarily have to always tell the story. Mm -hmm. And I think Monticello is a place that I think really is a reflection of the abilities for places uh, and sites of memory to evolve in how they tell the story of themselves. Because how Monticello told the story of itself 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. That's right. It's fundamentally different than five years ago, right? right? It's like very different than how it tells the story of itself. This is the site today. of Tom, Thomas Jefferson. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson's plantation. And, um, and you know, it's because of the work of scholars like Annette Gordon-Reed. It's because of uh, the descendants of people who were enslaved there and, and insisting that those stories of their ancestors be told. Mm, right. Yeah. Because part of what we have to remember is that like that Senegal was colonized until the 60s. Right. And so many of the documents, so many of the archives, so many of the histories, so many of the stories that would inform how that place is able to tell the story of itself were taken away or were dismissed. Right. And so it's a place that I think is still learning how to tell the story of itself while while at the same time honoring the tradition um, of the histories that have been passed down yeah. um, in that space. Yeah. We are going to take another break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how we write through analogies, historical analogies, to make sense of the different choices that Americans have made to talk about their past and Germans have made to talk about their past. We'll be right back after the break. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile App is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
Recently, Clint, you published a cover story in The Atlantic, and uh, I was so eager to read it because I saw this as the ninth trip of how the word has passed. But this time, uh, not just leaving the United States, I mean, obviously, we just talked about Senegal, uh, but leaving the Black-White story, leaving the story of what happened to Black people. And it's such a powerful way to reveal the water we swim in in the United States, the way in which we are trapped in a debate about how we should remember a past which has mostly been soaked through with white supremacy and Confederate monuments and the erasure and the ongoing right now erasure of Black history and Black studies, whether it's anti-CRT bills or whether it's the now uh, meddling with and altering of an AP African-American studies class. And so share a little bit about the insights you gleaned when you walked the streets of Berlin and, and saw up close um, to witness and to write about uh, what happened during the Holocaust in that country. Yeah, I mean, there's, man, there's so much to say. Mm -hmm. But, you know, one of the, the reason that I went to uh, Germany is because as I was on book tour for, for How the Word Has Passed, um, people would often say, you know, well, you talk about America sort of largely failing to reckon with its relationship to to the history of chattel slavery and indigenous genocide. And well, what's a place that's doing it well? Mm. And I would always be like, oh, you know, Germany is doing this and Germany's doing that. And Germany has this memorial and Germany has that monument. And there came a point where I was like, mm. I keep talking about the memorials in Germany and I've never been to the memorials in Germany. Right. And so it felt disingenuous to me to continue to talk about this thing that I hadn't encountered myself. And so went over to Germany uh, initially spent a week there and traveled to all these different um, sites of memory, the train stations from which Jewish people were deported uh, and sent to death camps, the uh, memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe, this massive 200,000 square foot monument in the middle of downtown Berlin. You know, then there's the Stolperstein the, 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 or the Stumbling Stones, the largest decentralized memorial in the world, the 70,000 brass stones across 30 different European countries that are placed in front of the homes where Jewish people and others who were persecuted by the Nazis were taken from before they were sent to these death camps. Um, I wanted to understand how how Germany tells the story of its past. And part of what it was revealed is that there is a, a level of complexity um, and nuance in the sense that many Jewish people uh, in Germany have very different ideas about the efficacy um, and the texture of these different memorials. There are some who really love the stumbling stones and who think it's so meaningful mm -hmm. to place these intimate objects uh, that sort of symbolize individual Jewish people um, on the ground in front of the places where they once lived. Other people think it's fundamentally disrespectful mm -hmm. to place the names of Jewish people on the ground. Mm. Some people think that the uh, memorial to the murdered Jews of Europe is is it, the size and scale of it conveys the the horror of the enormity you know, the of worst genocide right. in in modern history and the enormity of it. Other people think it's too abstract and too passive, and and this was really important for me because obviously no group of people is homogenous in their sensibilities and their thinking. But it was just important to be reminded that like oh even. There is no consensus, so right. to speak, on what these monuments are or how they work. And the other thing, too, that I hadn't fully considered until I was there was that one of the primary differences between how Germany grapples with its past and how the United States grapples with its past is that there just aren't a lot of Jewish people left yeah, yeah. in Germany. Yeah, right? you, you, you use this people, great example of Angola prison, mm -hmm. which was a former yeah. plantation. And you're like, it'd be like if there was a prison built on top of a concentration camp and the and two thirds of the population of the people incarcerated there were Jewish. But yeah. but you know, that's that's Louisiana, but in, in Germany there just aren't that many Jews around. It's an abstraction, as you said. Yeah, yeah. I mean there's there's uh, I think Jewish people are less than a quarter of a percent of the population. Mm -hmm. Right. Like there yeah. are more Jewish people in the city of Boston than there are in all of Germany. Yeah. And I don't think I fully understood that. And so the thing is, you know, one of the women I was talking to that I talk about in the piece, she was like, it's easy for Germans to build monuments and memorials to Jewish people and to the Holocaust because we're more of a historical abstraction than we are actual people. 
right? Like most Germans don't know a Jewish person. And as this woman put it, uh, this Jewish historian, she was saying, you know, Judaism is almost a, a, a empty canvas upon which Germans can paint their contrition, mm. right? And then in the United States, that's very different. There's tens of millions of us who are the descendants of enslaved people. So you can't simply lay down a wreath or build a memorial or build a monument and say, oh man, this was really terrible. We're so sorry that this happened. If you're not going to also engage in material interventions that make amends for the harm that has been done because those people are still here. That's right. And so that creates a lack of willingness with which to even begin to engage that history. And I think it's fundamentally tied to so much of what we see um, happening in our sort of uh, in the landscape of education around yeah, these issues. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Man, I, I will say, Clint, that that uh, reading that piece and, and wrestling with myself, exactly what you're saying, like the absurdity that as in the United States that we don't we don't grapple with our with our past of chattel slavery, of, of indigenous genocide, that it's it's you know, it is that it is our past and we should be wrestling with it. And at the same time, it shows like that it's whatever ways we do, it's going to be complicated. Um, mm. Also, in this conversation with you two guys, both of whom have gone to these memorial sites, like I'm the one person who is not only Jewish, but whose father was born in Nazi Germany mm. and escaped as a child, a three-year-old with his parents. Mm. Like, I got to go. Wow. I can't be out here like this. <laughs> like, I can't have you two guys. Like, like, like I, I'm feeling like how you felt, Clint. Like, I'm talking about this, but I've never been to Germany. Mm. Um, yeah. 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 And, you yeah. know, one, one of I mean, the ways. But, that even, but even that, like, that's that's so interesting to me because I met so many people who are like that. Who, yeah. And not because they haven't thought about it, because they were like, no, none. Like, we don't go to oh, Germany. Yeah, man. Like, their parents had instilled in them. And I don't know if this is the case for you, but it just makes me think of all the people I talked to, to who are like, why would I ever go back to that place? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's just interesting the way that those sort of messages either explicitly or more subtly sort of get passed down across generations yeah man clint I, I i am so glad that we got to do this that we got to sit down and have this conversation you are doing amazing work and it's just uh it's making me think of all kinds of things and and it's inspiring my own work so thank you yeah yeah same here man and uh the power of your work and the stories you're telling and the way you're reaching from the youngest who can hear and, and learn something in your poetry to the oldest who's reading the Atlantic or reading your books is in reminding us that we all have choices and we can change those choices too. And so that's the hope in all of this, that we can choose differently. And uh, I am hopeful that as people encounter your work, uh, they will make different choices in the future. I appreciate that. That's very generous of you. It's been, uh, been a real pleasure. Wow, what a powerful conversation and what a <laughs> what an amazing speaker and writer. Just a uh, just really lovely person. Lovely person and and just very moving and uh and, and something I was really struck by um when he talked about the fact that so much of what he has seen in Germany um turns on the fact that there are just very few Jews there. And, you know, you talked about not having been there yourself. And I just, I wanted to know, like, you know, is that something that you've struggled with? I mean, have you had a conversation with your parents? Have you, have you thought about this beyond just this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Clint had said that there, he, he ran into a lot of Jewish people who were like, I'll never go back to Germany. Hmm. For me, it's mostly like, I just didn't have money for the plane ticket. Oh, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you've been, no, no. You've been to South Africa, you can't get to Germany? Come on. So, so the, the truth is my grandparents who fled Nazi Germany with my father when he was a little boy, mm. they moved to the United States. When I was a kid, they decided to leave America and move back to Europe. Wow. And so they, they ended up living in Switzerland and visited Germany many times. And my father also has visited Germany more than once, many times. Mm. I just haven't been. I'm actually curious. I want to go. Um, yeah. So it's not a choice that I feel like, you know... Uh, this is a place like it's verboten to use a, a German word that I shouldn't go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I mean, just to, to, to extend this one one minute further, like, I mean, given that your grandparents moved back to Europe and your father's been multiple times, so like, what is the story for 
that's passed on. How how has the word been passed on to you about that history? Man, that's really interesting. I mean, uh, in a way, it's there's n- it's not spoken mm. in some ways, and it's when it is there are sort of these gaps. I think as well. You know, my dad who was very little and he he fills in some of these stories. He mm. doesn't talk about it in a way that that this is something we should avoid. And I don't think there's anything in my family like this is off limits. Um, But it's still, you know, there is this, it's part of being Jewish is that this is, you know, Jewish in the 20th and 21st century, that this Mm. is, this is part of this immense experience that, that we have, that this is, this is, this trauma, this, this genocide is, is there. Yeah. Yeah. Woo. Well, um, I'm going to look forward to uh, either being there with you when you go or being the first to hear about it. No, I was when you were telling me about your trip, I, I again thought I needed to go and, and I will. I mean, I yeah. think Pushkin's going to pay for it. <laughs> They're willing right. to send us. Let's go. <laughs> All right. All right, man. All right. Love you. Love you, too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin. This show is produced by Lucy Sullivan. It's edited by Sarah Nix with help from Keishel Williams. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong, and our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo. At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg. Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young, from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his website, averyryoung.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at pushkin.fm. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com.